So Luke's Gospel opens with um, this introduction. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. This is Luke's way of saying, hey, here's some history for you, Theophilus. Theophilus is a Gentile, so he's writing this history of Jesus, things that he was witness to. So he's saying, look, a lot of other people have done this, and I've read their reports, and I also lived it. I saw him. I walked with him. I talked to him. And here's my account. It's actually a two-volume piece. It's Luke and then Acts. And he begins his narrative like any uh, good storyteller should at the beginning. And in the beginning, with these births, he, he, he tells a much larger story. And it's that story we want to engage together this morning. So the setting is around two birth announcements. The first one has come right in front of this. And you've got to think about this for a minute. In the history of God's redemptive purposes and program, births are significant. Whenever you see in Scripture, so across the, the time span of all of God's Word, which is a long time, not every birth is talked about. So when there's a birth mentioned in Scripture, we should pay attention. We've already seen this in our study of Exodus. Exodus begins with a genealogy, and then boom, the very next thing is a birth. Things are about to change. God is doing something with a birth. And the first one, here comes Elizabeth. This message going to Zechariah that, hey, your wife, who's beyond her childbearing years, your wife is about to conceive and bear a son. And in that encounter, he he didn't really believe. It was in the temple. You can go back and read it. It's this interesting encounter, and he he didn't really believe at first, and the angel says, okay, uh, you're not going to be allowed to speak until this baby is born. So that's the first birth announcement. Do you remember who's going to be born? Who is it? It's John. It's the forerunner. It's the last in the line of the prophets, the one who's going to come wearing camel's hair and eating weird things, having a weird diet, locusts and honey. He's a throwback. He's a throwback to the Old Testament prophets. So he's coming. There's one birth announcement, and that that birth is extraordinary. She's beyond child-rearing years, and she is going to conceive and have a son. And then there's another one, as as if that isn't enough. There's one that's even going to top that. That's where we encounter this account this morning. We meet this young woman named Mary. We're not given a ton of detail about her. 
Uh, We're told that she's betrothed, and maybe that needs a little explanation. Maybe you've heard this, maybe not, but betrothal is, we we don't do that anymore. We get engaged. We get engaged, and during the engagement, there's really no legal ramifications at all. If something goes completely and utterly wrong, you can break the engagement and just move on. It's sad, it's devastating, but that's not the case with betrothal. Betrothal is actually a legal period of time that lasts up to a year, and you're bound together as a couple during that time. However, you each live with your own families. Then at the end of that time, the husband goes to his bride, to their house, for a huge celebration, sometimes lasting a week or more. This huge celebration. At the end of that celebration, that's the end of the official betrothal period, they go home together. And that's when they're joined and officially married. But this first part is is a legal status. You can't get out of a betrothal. Things are done, but you, you have no contact with them on a regular basis. You're not living in the same home. Mary is betrothed, and she's told that she's going to conceive and bear a son. We're given the place, Nazareth. Nazareth. Again, another really familiar phrase just kind of rolls off the tongue. There it is, Nazareth. We've all got it in our minds. Look, it's an obscure place. It's in the region of Galilee, but it's kind of this out-of-the-way locale. And it's there that the angel comes to this young woman. Greetings, O favored one, he says. The Lord is with you. What does it mean to be favored? You ever read that word and highly favored? It's odd because it's just the term graced. You've, you've been graced. That's all that means. You've received grace. You're a recipient of grace, Mary. Mary herself is an obscure person in the scriptures. Where does she come from? What's her backstory? This whole announcement sounds and feels kind kind of strange. Who is Mary that she would be called favored, highly graced? Who is it that would receive this direct announcement from the angel Gabriel, from the very presence of God he delivers his messages? Who is she? Let me ask you, who, who is Abraham? Who who is he that he would receive a word from the Lord and be called out of Ur of the Chaldeans to, to the place that God would call him? Who is that guy? What has he got to commend him? Is there some huge backstory there about him? Who is David? Sinner. What commends him to God? Look, he he did vile things. And yet here he is, called and favored by God, graced by God, used by him, even as a type of the true king who would come. Who are these people but obscure people that God places his love upon 
that God graces and calls to himself to do extraordinary things. Look, we're meant to see the power and beauty of God in this call. Let this be an encouragement to you. If you know God, if you know the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's because God is at work in you. You are not obscure to your Maker, He knows your backstory. He knows all about you. It's astounding that he would grace you anyway. You don't have all these great things to commend yourself to him. It's not like Mary's down here saying, hey, here's what I have going on. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what makes me great before you. This is why you should be gracious to me. That's That's not what's going on in the text. God chose her to use her in an extraordinary way. This encounter is so familiar that I think sometimes detail escapes us. Notice that Gabriel comes and immediately sets Mary at ease, or he tries to. Don't be afraid. This is a constant refrain from angels. When you see them in Scripture, you don't see them as the precious moments like uh, figurines that are on your uh, grandmother's bathroom counter. That's, you, know, you know what I'm talking about. We've all seen those. They're, they're very cute and they, uh, they're very childlike. Uh, there's absolutely nothing about them that's intimidating whatsoever. Listen, those are cartoon angels. Whenever angels encounter people in the scriptures, they, if they want to get anything done anytime soon, they have to set the person at ease because usually they've just fallen on their face. And they have to say, no, hold on, it's going to be okay. Don't be afraid. The instant reaction to angels is often fear. I'm about to die. This, this being is going to take me out. It's this... Uh, it, it creates a great anxiety. So immediately, he sets her at ease. The announcement to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The announcement is to a virgin who would conceive Who is this son? Who will he be? This is the story of Advent, a story of coming, a story of the Lord Jesus Christ incarnate. I think sometimes it gets lost and confused in our minds. What's it all about? It's about hope and joy. It's about tremendous disruption I think sometimes we easily read over that part of it. And it's about what is possible. We read who this is about. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be great. And will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
and of his kingdom there will be no end. Underneath everything else, this is what it's about, this, this son whose name means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. Further, the angel would say, in addition to his name, Jesus, that this child would be great. Theophilus would have understood this term, great. For us, we just kind of read over it. It's just part of the Christmas story. Greatness to a Gentile, think a great leader, a great military, political leader. Think this. This still resonates even in our culture. Think Alexander the... That's right. This announcement of greatness is this vast greatness. This, it's a statement of power. Luke is saying this baby that's going to be born, power, greatness, majesty. He will be called the Son of the Most High God. Unlike John, who was great before God, this is a contrast to the, the coming, the announcement of the birth of John. He will be great before God, it's said in that text. Here, it says Jesus will be called the Son of the Most High God. The Lord God will give him the throne of David, and he will reign over his people forever. His kingdom will have no end. To understand that there is hope here, you must understand that there is great expectation. That there is longing. That things aren't right. They're not the way they're supposed to be. Otherwise, why would this inbreaking of hope, this inbreaking of Jesus mean anything? There's a great need for hope. I love the way stories are weaved together. So if you, if you read uh, a lot of books, it's inevitable that you'll come along one or two that are very disjointed at the beginning. You're reading along and the story is fractured. You have this one plot going on. Les Mis does this. Crime and Punishment does this. Some other great works of literature take on this motif. You're reading along and there's a plot. There's a, a story here, a tiny little story. You're like, man, this is good. I'm, I'm enjoying this. And all of a sudden, there's another story. You're like, wait a minute, what just happened to the one I was just reading? And then you're, you're introduced to this other character, and this other character weaves over here and does this whole other thing over here. And then while he's over here, he's thinking about this history that happened way back here. You're like, what in the world is going on? And pretty soon you get confused, and you close it and set it down and come back three months later when you're ready to take it on again. You know, you have these disparate stories going on, right? And then slowly, masterfully, beautifully, all these stories start to weave together. And the characters start coming into contact with one another. And the plot, instead of having this choppy thing, all this stuff is revealed to be beautiful and vast. So much bigger than you originally thought when you were reading this little great story. You see this grand story is being told. That's exactly what's going on here with Gabriel. He's bringing threads together. These scarlet threads that run through scripture. He's weaving them together 
and saying, hey, this is all about this child. All these threads, all these stories in the past, they're all coming together in this baby that's to be born. This baby will be great. This baby will be the son of the Most High God. Here, this is a distinguishing title. This is not the same as children of God. For Israel in the Old Testament, it's not even the same as you and I. This is the only begotten Son of God. It's a unique title. Yes, we are adopted heirs of Jesus. Absolutely. We have an identity that's in Him. But I want us to know that this is unique. We are not the children of God in this way. The way that Jesus is called here the Son of the Most High. There's a uniqueness to this. Jesus will be given the throne of his father, David. The strands here are coming together. Our Old Testament reading today is exactly that, this anticipation of a great king who would come after David. Now, David ranks as top-notch king in Israel. When Israel thought back to their history, when they list their kings, David is hard to beat. You can't top David. Yeah, he did a lot of things wrong, but he was an incredible leader. He fought for his people. He represented them well. David, this great king. And in that text, we we read all these things about what God is going to do with David's descendants. God says, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And here there's this wordplay that's choppy. It's going back and forth between Solomon, his true heir, who would build a temple. But all of a sudden he says, but this kingdom is going to be forever. Suddenly you go from Solomon to this cosmic kingdom and this vast rule of a king. The text goes on, though, and it says some interesting things. Verse 14, this is again back in 2 Samuel. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Here this cosmic king, this son who will have a kingdom that will last forever, is going to be disciplined by his father. Yet at the same time he's disciplined, the steadfast love of the father will not be removed from the son. You must catch that. This is a son who does nothing wrong. This is a son who never leaves the the love of his father, but is disciplined. What is going on there? It's the gospel. It's the good news that a king is coming. A king who would bear the punishment for sin that you and I deserve, and yet he will absolutely receive the never-ending, steadfast covenant love of the Father. This king, the son of David, will redefine greatness. This king will have a greatness unlike every other king He will not define his kingdoms first in terms of what he gets, but what he gives. 
This king will be the very son of God. This king will come to save his people. This king will rule an eternal kingdom. This king will bear the very wrath of God, the rod of men, the stripes of the son of men, and this king will be beloved of the father forever. That's what's being announced to Mary. This announcement brings incredible hope in darkness. All the longings, the hopes, we, we long for salvation. We dream about it. And so did they. They longed to be released from captivity. They longed for liberation. This is what we're told Christ has come to do. This is the message of Advent. This is the hope that Advent brings. That all the expectation that we have All the hopes of a nation, all the hopes of the world, of the cosmos, are here. What would that that do to Mary? Here we have all this hope, all this expectation. We need a Savior. And, And here He comes, says Gabriel. Do you think this young woman thought, man, this is this is so great? I'm just so excited about what comes next. Oh, this is a highly disruptive thing that would happen to her. Look at Mary's response. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? She gets it right away. Hey, I'm betrothed. This is bad news. Yeah, Joseph and I are betrothed, but we're not together. Not yet. How will this be? She must be wondering, along with the rest of the world today, how can this be, much less all the uh, social and moral implications of this pregnancy? You know, people spend a lot of time um, and spill a lot of ink denying the virgin birth of Christ. It's really devastating. When you think about it, I love this uh, interaction between C.S. Lewis and one of his cohorts. This one uh, is recorded in several places, but uh, he's um, a professor at the University of Oxford. He's in his office uh, overlooking the, the square, and another professor is speaking to him, and they've just read Wesley's hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb. This clever professor uh, looks at Lewis and said, isn't it wonderful that we know better? Isn't it wonderful that we know better? Lewis says to him, what do you mean? The professor explains, well, isn't it better that we know that virgins don't conceive and give birth? Lewis says, but don't you think they knew that too? Isn't that the point? Don't you think that Dr. Luke knew that too? Look, it, it, it sounds strange. It, came to, it comes to us as strange today. You don't think it was to her? You don't think it was odd to, for Mary to hear this? And utterly and absolutely inconvenient in every possible way. Perhaps for the rest of her life, disparaged, certainly by some. 
your version of Christianity says that Christ comes in and now all your problems are over, you never encounter struggle following Jesus, then you probably haven't encountered Jesus. Look, when Jesus breaks in, he disrupts things. He blows things up. He doesn't, he, he, he doesn't come in and, and like, yes, he, he is bringing cosmic peace. But when he comes to Mary, he is disrupting everything about her life and upending it. And you can expand and extrapolate that out to you and to me. This is the way Christ works. He blows things up. He will not be fit into a box of our expectations. The good news of the gospel is not come to Jesus and have everything fixed, everything smooth and worked out in clean, straight lines in your life. That is not the gospel. That's what we want the gospel to be. But it is not the gospel to her or to us. The good news is that the very Son of God is coming in to establish an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom that will have no end. That He is bringing peace. But often when He comes to us, He does so blowing up our expectations. It's not a call to ease and to comfort. It's often a call to a whole lot more questions and pain. The Jesus that you know agrees with you about everything that you do, then it's probably not this Jesus. Look, do you think Mary would write the story this way? Would you write the story this way? No. And, and look, if you find your story is smooth and perfect and just the way that you will write it, you have to ask the question where's Jesus? Where is Christ? How am I being disrupted by Him? How is He challenging me and pushing back and leaning in against me in love? What is He doing with me? Ask that question. It's a great one. Christianity is disruptive. It's inconvenient. It's difficult. Forcing us to look at ourselves and the world around us in a way that the world doesn't always agree with. Advent is extremely disruptive. It would utterly subvert everything about the world and overturn so much about life for Mary and for me and for you. Advent is also about what is possible. Notice Gabriel's answer to the question of how will these things be? He gives some detail. The Spirit of God will overshadow you. This is um, Old Testament language again. So when you have the temple there and all of God's people living in proximity to it and the tabernacle, the Spirit of God would overshadow the temple. His very presence would be there. He said, that's going to be you. God's Spirit is coming on you. So he gives some, some detail, a, a little bit of detail. This child would be holy, the very Son of God, not like other sons, the Son of God. And he ends with, uh, oh, this is going on. There's, there's also a miracle going on with Elizabeth. And then he says this, nothing will be impossible for God. At the heart of Mary's question is this, how is this all going to work out? How is this all going to go down? 
I just don't see it. I think that situation fits us so well. That question hits us right where we need to be hit. Every one of us in this room, every one of us in some way is asking this question. How is all this going to work out? And maybe it fits a new mother. Maybe there's someone in here who understands this question. I mean, right down there where she was. How is this going to go down? How can we figure this out? Maybe it fits a crazy work situation. Whatever circumstance you're in, most of us live with this question. The answer is not that, again, that Christ makes things nice and neat and clean lines. The answer to this is that the Holy One has been born. The answer is the same as it was for her. The the very thing that we think of as impossible, that we could ever be fully loved and embraced and given life and freedom and have hope in the face of our sin and the ugliness around us, all that is true and, and has come to pass in Christ. The thing that we think of as impossible, salvation working out from ourselves, which is very impossible. Gabriel looks at her and says, look, that thing that you think of as impossible is possible with God. Isn't that the lesson that we need? Possibility with God. Lastly, I love this, Mary's response. It's simple and profound. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Again, look at the contrast that Zechariah in the story uh, previous to this was struck dumb because he didn't, he didn't believe. And here, this even more unbelievable birth announcement. Can you imagine getting this card in the mail? It's this gilded thing, and it says these words on it that the, the angel said to her. Could you imagine? And then look at the simple humility. Look at the faith that she expresses. She simply says, okay, let it be to me according to your word. The lesson of Advent here is one of submission to God, submission to his word. Yes, yes, may this happen as you say it should happen. What might that look like for you and me? Would Christ ever call us to something crazy? Here, let me phrase it like this. Would God ever call us to something crazy like the ordinary Christian life? Like following God with all that we are. Like loving Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourself. Would He ever call us to anything crazy like mission? Like really loving our neighbors? Would He ever do that? And would we ever buck against it? No, I'm sure none of us do that. None of us push that away and say, no, that's not going to happen. Let us be encouraged by her response, by Mary's response here to this message. Let it be to me according to your word. And what humility. 
What humility. Advent occurred. Christ came bringing hope. The very Son of God, the Son of David, holy, taking the throne that would last forever. That message, far from being easy and clean and neat, was very disruptive, and it still is. It disrupts everything. And yet here we find this great response. I am your servant. Let it be to me according to your word. I want to end reading the lyrics of a hymn. That's the one that uh, Lewis and uh, his partner were listening to and singing together in their office long ago in Oxford. It was written in 1739 by Charles Wesley. He penned these words. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn King, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful all ye nations rise, join the triumph of the skies, with the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. Come, desire of nations, come, fix us in thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruised in us the serpent's head. Now display thy saving power, ruined nature now restore, now in mystic union join thine to ours and ours to thine. Adam's likeness, Lord, efface, stamp thine image in its place, second Adam from above, reinstate in thy love. Let us thee, though lost, regain, thee, the life, the inner man, owe to all thyself in part. Formed in each believing heart. Amen. Let's pray.